for you. As we come to the scripture now, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, um, I pray as we come to this word on this day that you would um, again cause your word to ring true to us. That we'll say, yes, this is, this is the very word of God. So speak to us. Enable us, not simply to listen and to understand, but more importantly, even with that, to believe that your word would find its perfect place in us and work in us individually and as a church as well. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Jonah in chapter 4, Old Testament, Minor Prophet, Jonah chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, what displeased Jonah exceedingly was the fact that, remember, when he went to Nineveh and he warned them, what displeased them is that they actually repented. And what displeased him is that God relented upon pouring his judgment upon them and rescued them. And so that's what displeased him. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, you do well to be angry. Do you do well to be angry? Well, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which it came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the Bible, one of the things I try to do is I try to pretend like I'm reading it for the first time. It's uh, hard for me to do these days, given my advanced age. But, uh, but, I, but I do. I, I try, to, I try to, to read it. I try to think, what, what, what would really come to mind if I were reading this for the first time? And I have to confess, I've been doing that with Jonah as I've shared. I'm shocked at each chapter. 
And there's something shocking at every turn. I mean, the first shock in chapter one, when, when, when God comes to Jonah and tells him to go to Nineveh, and I'm thinking, you don't usually do that, God. You don't usually send your prophets to other lands. You usually keep them in Israel or Judah, and, and you don't, you don't send them. That sometimes they speak against other places, but you don't send them there. That was shocking. And then when the prophet of God said no, essentially, that was shocking. It isn't that other prophets didn't debate back and forth with God from time to time, but they always gave in. But Jonah fled and he wanted to get out of the presence of God. I mean, you know, I think one of the first things on the line of the job description for a prophet is be in the presence of God. And he said no, and he fled. That was that was shocking, you know. Uh, and then I figured God would stop him, but but he found a ship going to Tarshish, and it, it wasn't stopped. But but then I was shocked by the storm that came up, uh, and then Jonah wouldn't pray. I'm thinking, why wouldn't you pray, Jonah? I mean, the, these pagan sailors are giving it their best shot, and now they want you to pray, and you say no. That's not like a prophet at all. I wouldn't have expected that. And then Jonah says, let me die. Throw me overboard. And though they do. And then he lives. He wasn't supposed to live. That wasn't how I had envisioned this story going. I figured he'd die. There's lots to preach from there on the judgment of God and being obedient to God and all that kind of stuff. I would have been content with that. But, but, he, but he lives, and not only does he live, he lives in such a way that's miraculous. God sends this big fish to swallow him, essentially, and he, he's living in the belly of this fish. That's a shock. And then he prays. What a turnaround. And, and he prays a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of thanksgiving that's laced with lines from the song. And he's thankful to God. He realizes that God it was God's sovereign hand that, that, that made the storm, that, that, that got into the fish and all of that, and that here Jonah finds himself alive. So he's, he's grateful for being alive, at least it seems, and he's thankful. It's curious. He doesn't really say sorry for having run. But he's thankful for having been rescued, at least. So then he goes to Nineveh, and then what's shocking here is that God calls him a second time. I would assume, well, Jonah, good luck, you're done. I mean, God will get somebody else to go to Nineveh. You've already blown it. But but no, he calls Jonah a second time, which is amazing, to, to go to Nineveh. And Jonah does. It's not as surprising given the experience that he's had. And he brings this word of warning. Now, what's surprising then is that these ruthless, violent, wicked Pagan people in Nineveh actually turned to God. I mean, like the whole city from the king all the way, all the way down. I mean, everybody's in sackcloth and ashes. Everybody's repenting. And it seems sincere. I mean, you can't con God. So it seems sincere. He relents of, of pouring out his judgment upon them. Now, if everything had ended there, I'm thinking, what a great event in the history of, 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 of all of God's redemption. I mean, what a great thing. That this, I could preach this forever. I, I want to see what happened in Nineveh. That would be great to happen in Lawrence or in any other community. I mean, what a great thing to, to have happen. But, but then I get to chapter 4 and I'm, I'm just shocked again. Because Jonah's really angry at God for saving these people. He's mad enough to die. He said, he said, you shouldn't have saved me in the first place. Look what's happened. 
They're not being judged the way I think they should have been judged. And Jonah's, Jonah's angry. And I realize when I get to chapter 4, it was all leading to this. This is what I need to know. This is the climax of the, of the whole thing. Now what's interesting to me is that if you mention Jonah to anybody... They're going to think of the big fish or the whale. We don't know if it was a whale, but it was a whale of a fish. It was a big fish, right? It was a big fish. Uh, and so that's what everybody thinks about it. And, you know, it's, you color pick. And I understand why it was a miraculous thing. It's, it's shocking in that sense. It's easy for kids to color, you know, uh, in Sunday school, the, the big fish and all of that and have Jonah in the belly of the whale and all that. So, so I understand all of that. And it shows the, the graciousness of God, as we said, the undeserving graciousness of God. We don't deserve it. The, the relentless gracious of God, that he pursues us, the irresistible grace of God, that, that he convinces us, he overcomes our resistance, uh, all of that, and, and, and the restoring grace of God, even as we move into chapter 3 and he comes to him a second time and restores Jonah. So all of that, that's wonderful. So we get that. But rarely do people mention this, what I just read about Jonah's anger with God. And, and about the lesson that God brings to Jonah. That, that's not usually what we think of, or at least think of first. And, and I begin to wonder why. Why don't we think, why don't I think of that first? And I know why, really. Because it hits way too close to home. It's way more fun to think about the fish. It's way more fun to think about that grace. It's way more fun to think about all that enjoyable. And, and yet, when I think about this, it just kind of makes me go, ow, deeply. Because what we find here is that, that, that Jonah was displeased exceedingly. You could translate that very literally and it would go something like this. Look at the evil that you've done. I mean, Jonah sees this as evil, that God had done something evil. God had done something wrong. It was unjust to do what God did for these people uh, of Nineveh. So he's exceedingly uh, displeased. As we said, he's displeased enough really, really to die. And, and he says to God, you know, I knew this was going to happen. Because I know you. And so now we really realize why it was that, that, that Jonah uh, didn't want to go to Nineveh. I mean, uh, when we, the story unfolds, we could ask that question. Jonah, why don't you want to go? Is it because you're afraid of what will happen to you when you get there? I mean, that would be reasonable. One guy, big, mean city. Why would he want to enter into that situation? He'd likely to be killed himself. And so, or, or if he realized the task was too big, how could I do this? How could I, how could I take this message of warning to this huge city? How could that ever really, uh, happen? And so, so perhaps that maybe he's just lazy. Who knows? But, but, but now we really know. He wasn't angry with God. Because he had a wrong perception of God. He was angry with God because he knew the character of God. He was angry with God because he knew the glory of God. He was angry with God because God was sovereignly gracious and sovereignly merciful. Notice how he puts it. This is a, a really a, a quote 
out of Exodus 34, where Moses uh, asked God to show him his glory. And God says, I'll make my name to pass, to pass in front of you. He says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are gracious, God, and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says, I knew that you were going to do this. I, I knew it, this was going to take place. Now, now, why was Jonah so upset about that? Why was Jonah so upset that, that God was going to be compassionate uh, toward the people of Nineveh? Well, uh, the text doesn't really tell us exactly. But, but we know, in some sense, he had this, this overriding idol, perhaps we could say, of nationalism. I mean, there was a sense in which he thought, as many in his day would have thought, that God was the God of the Israelites only, and that, that God could be gracious to the people of Israel, but to no one else, really. And so if God had come to the people of Israel with such a warning and relented, that would be one thing, because that was the covenant people of God. But, but these people out there, no, no, not those people out there. They were ruthless and wicked, and, 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 and they flaunted their wickedness. And so they certainly didn't deserve it. Uh, and so he was, he was Jonah. Remember when they asked him who he was on the ship, he said, I'm a, I'm a Hebrew. Uh, I'm a Hebrew. So that was important to him. Of course it was important to him. And, and there he was in the midst of, of that, this, this nationalism. He didn't think that... Nineveh had the right to be saved. But I don't know about you, but what I'm thinking at this point is, Jonah, how could you think that? How could you think that, especially after what happened to you? I mean, how could you think that there was anybody on the face of the earth that didn't, couldn't receive grace from God after you had received such grace? I mean, Jonah, don't you remember the call that you got? Don't you remember the running that you did? Don't you remember... The, the ship you were on to flee the presence of God. Don't you remember the fish? Don't you remember how you woke up in the fish amazed that you were alive? And you knew you had nothing to do with it, that you should be dead. But God in his sovereign, was sovereign over the storm and sovereign over the sailors and sovereign over the lots that they cast and sovereign over, over the fish. Uh, the, the God's sovereign grace and mercy that came to you. Don't you remember any of that? And now you're, you're, you're to say that these people shouldn't have it too? Do you really believe that you were the one who deserved it? And even if I ask that question, I have to ask that same question of me. And I simply want to say, really, Bill, you don't understand this? You don't understand what he was thinking? feeling I mean don't you sometimes think there are sinners and then there are those sinners I mean sinners deserve it but those sinners I mean and the classic question that every pastor gets at least twice a year is this one do you really believe that if Adolf Hitler would have professed faith in Jesus before the, he died, that he really would have been forgiven all those atrocities and all of his sins and be in heaven right now with God. I mean, that's the question. 
People can't, I mean, people stand amazed at, at even the thought of such a thing. Someone, a sinner like Hitler, or you could put in your favorite despicable historical character, right? Stalin, you could go back further, I suppose. But even in our minds, bin Laden. Or you can think of, of current ones, like the leaders of ISIS or others. And you think, really? If they really repented of their sin, if they really came to faith in Jesus, are you telling me that all the things that they've done would be forgiven and they'd be in glory when they die with Jesus and, and, and we would have to even embrace them as, as brothers and sisters in Jesus? You, you telling me that? And, and there's something in us that doesn't want us... We kind of... Or even more, more personally, you know? The people in our culture that scare us the most, the people in our culture that sin in, in ways that disgust us the most, the people in our culture that, that do particular sins that, that cause us to, when we read about them and, and even as they flaunt such sin and we go, surely they deserve judgment. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Or those people who have hurt us deeply. You really mean that that one who's hurt me so deeply, parent, child, spouse, employer, a friend, that one who's hurt me so deeply, you mean, you mean to tell me that that one who hurt me so deeply came to faith because God in his sovereign mercy poured out his grace upon that person and enabled them to believe. you telling me that I would need to embrace that person as a brother, as a sister. That's what Jonah was, you see, <clears throat> in, the midst of, in the midst of all that. He had to receive these Ninevites, these pagans, these ones who were so ruthless, these enemies, these ones who would love to have taken the territory of Israel, love to have killed Israelites, love to have enslaved Israelites, would have loved to have done that and had done that this and that times during history. And so, so that's where he was. You mean, really, I have to be happy for these. And then we begin to think, don't, don't I sometimes get angry with God? about how he manifests his sovereignty. Aren't there times when I want to say, God, why'd that happen? You know, God, I think, that, I think you were wrong about that. Or why don't you do this? God, this is what you really need to do. And I don't see you doing it. And so I'm disappointed with you. I'm angry with you even. God, why don't, why don't you do this? And it isn't we're upset about God because what we are wrong about his character. We're upset because we know that he is sovereign and he is good and he is just and all of those things. And we get upset, don't we? We disappointed when certain things don't happen, when other things do happen. We can get angry when certain things happen and certain other things don't happen. And we wonder about, about all of this. I mean, if anybody had a case against God, wouldn't it have been Job? I mean, we know that 
situation. We, we, the, we, we know the behind the scenes situation with Job. We, we know that, that, that it was God really who, who gave the, the, the permission to Satan, put him on a leash, but still gave the permission to Satan to have at Job. And we know the pain and we can't even imagine most of us the pain that he must have gone to lose all of his children and his grandchildren, to lose his wealth and, and to be in such physical pain as well. And then to have such counselors that would come and badger him all the time about about his situation and and there he was in the midst of that and, and you can feel it in job the confusion at times the wondering why is this taking place please god give me an audience with you but but you know when he got an audience with god that he realized oh god you're god i'm not oh all right or, or the psalmist of of 73, Psalm 73. You know this psalm, I trust it's the American psalm, I call it. Uh, I shouldn't, but it is uh, very much who we are. It starts out by the psalmist saying, Truly, uh, God is good to Israel for those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had, had, had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I mean, this sense, we look around and we see, you know, God, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. You know, I go to church and I tithe and, and I, I, you know, I, 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 you know, my kids are in Sunday school and, and I, I, I try to run my business and, and, and my work uh, place as well as I can and, and, and all of that, you know. Uh, and, and, and yet, my neighbors seem to be so much more carefree than I. They seem to have so much more than I. We sit around all the dinners. They keep telling me all the trips they took. And I'm going, well, I went to Topeka last week. You know? And, 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 and they seem healthy. I mean, healthy as they can be. They, you know, they, 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 they run and they're, they're out every day. And, and I, you know, I've got arthritis and I'm this and I'm that. You know, I've got all these problems. So what's the deal? I, I don't really like how you're sovereignly even Blessing with common grace, my neighbors. And all of that. Well, then, then you know, I mean, he's, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, when I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast to you. In other words, I shouldn't have been behaving like this to you. God, I should have known better, because I know that you're good and you're wise and you're just and all of that. And he said, But when I sought to understand this, verse 16, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned their end, you see. I said, oh, okay, I saw it then. Or the questioner of Romans 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul begins to lay out or has at least clarify what he's been talking about in terms of God's sovereign grace in salvation. And so he, he's, he speaks in the same way of himself that Jonah spoke of him, that he'll show mercy upon whom he'll show mercy. And and then the questioner asked this first question. Um, well, is there injustice on God's part? Romans 9 chapter, uh, Romans chapter 9 verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? I mean, how can he be like this? How can he, how can he love Jacob and hate Esau? I mean, how, how can that happen? How can he choose one over the other? You know, and, and the questioner is not, not raising this because he isn't understanding. He's asking this question because he does understand. He does understand what Paul's talking about. He's talking about God's sovereign mercy and grace. And so he says, well, that's not fair. Uh, and, and Paul says, by no means. 
For God says to Moses, I'll have mercy upon whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he have, on, on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, that, that doesn't seem to help. So the questioner goes on to say, why then does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And then the apostle says, but who are you? Oh man, to answer back to God, what is molded, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, I think we get Jonah way more than we want to get Jonah. It's not what we're confused about God that bothers us. It's what we know about him. And still, uh, it raises within us disappointment or anger. And what God wants to show us is, no, 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 no. He is good. God is. God is wise. And yes, he is sovereign. Trust him. Trust him. Uh, I read a few minutes ago, probably one of the most well-known passages in all of the Bible. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal in the negative sense. Prodigal means extravagant, and this son was extravagantly wasteful, extravagantly um, reckless, as we know. And... uh, and, and there he was. Now, Jesus tells this story for a particular reason. We think it's to show us the compassion of the Father, and it is. I mean, it's a great, a great parable, great story for us to, to hear about the compassion of God. And in fact, we, we see the first part of the parable of the prodigal son in Jonah chapter 1, 2, and 3. And the prodigal is a wonderful way to keep it in our head. Again, we get it. We see these two sons. And the one son wants his inheritance now. And so his father gives him the inheritance. And so he runs off and he spends it all in in riotous, as some versions have it, or reckless, as other versions have it, living. You can only imagine. And, and even at the end, we find out some of what was taking place. He was spending it on prostitutes. And so we know this wasn't just sort of your average party stuff or, or, or taking big traveling trips. This was, this was real sinful sin living, if you will, reckless, riotous living. And, and so there was nothing good about the way he was living and spending his money. But he spent it all in such a degree that he had nothing. And he ended up taking a job, which would be very despicable for any good Jewish boy, to feed pigs. And so he was feeding the pigs. And it, while he was feeding the pigs, he was lusting after their slop because he was hungry. But he knew he couldn't eat any of it because he wasn't worthy of it. It was just for the pigs, not for him. And there he was in the belly of a pigsty, in the belly of a big fish, if you will. And, and he, there he was, you see. And, and he realized, oh, my father. 
he's way nicer to his servants than I'm living right now. So I'll go back. Sincerely, he came to his senses, the scripture says. I'll go back and I'll say to my father, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. Please take me back as a servant. I don't deserve to be your son, but take me back as a servant. And so you go, he really, he really sees what he has done. How he's offended his father. And so he goes back and he says all of this to his father. And, and the compassion of his father is such that his dad has been watching for him to return. So he sees him come. And when he sees him come, the father runs to him. Now, for a good Jewish father, that's a very undignified thing to do. To run like that. But, but he runs. He's relentless after us. He runs after his son. And he runs after his son. His son makes confession to him. And his dad says, fine. And he looks to his other servants and he says, this is my son. So bring him a robe and cover him. This is my son. So bring him a ring, the family ring to put on his finger so he can manage his own affairs around here. And bring him shoes for his feet. And, and we're going to have a celebration. Now, now, this parable, of course, comes in Luke chapter 15, and it comes in the midst of other parables like this to tell us about the graciousness of God. And not about only about the graciousness of God, but something we all have to get right in our minds and hearts, and that is the joy that God receives from being gracious. That's his glory. He loves it. He loves being gracious. The first parable in this whole series is, is that para, para, uh, parable about the lost sheep, you remember. And there is a man has a hundred sheep. One gets lost. And so he leaves everything and goes out in danger to himself. But he finds the sheep, puts it on his shoulders and carries it back. And, and you, you know the expression at the end. He comes back rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Of course, if we could say this about Jesus. He was being sarcastic there. Everybody needs to repent. The only ones who think themselves righteous are those who are self-righteous and they're the most blinded of all. But his point is that God is thrilled at every Ninevite who repents. And then the lost coin. We know the next one, a woman has coins and so she loses one. They're valuable. She, she sweeps out her house. She looks everywhere to find it. She finds it. And when she does, she invites all of her friends over to a party and, and, and Jesus' punchline is just so I tell you there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And, 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 and that, you see, is where God is at the end of chapter 3 in Jonah. He's, he's overwhelmingly filled with joy. And I don't know how you understand God, but understand this about God. He rejoices. Sometimes I have to be honest with you, I have a hard time thinking about that. Sometimes I think about God as just sort of this objective force. But we have to think about God as he really is. He rejoices. And he rejoices, he's filled with joy 
when he exercises his sovereign mercy and grace in such a way that sinners turn to him. And that's where he was. At the end of Jonah 3, that's the point so far of this passage in the prodigal son. But, but, but Jesus doesn't stop there because just like Jonah, that's not the point. He's not telling the story just for that. He's setting us up with that. We feel really great at this point in the story of the prodigal son about the compassion of the father. We're saying this is wonderful. But then he brings in the elder brother whose name was Jonah. Not really, but you know what I'm saying. Brings in the elder brother. And the elder brother's all upset. How could this be? That's not fair. That's not just for my father to restore this wayward son. I mean, look at what he's done. And look at me. I've never done anything like that. I've been here all along, slaving away from my dad. And he never once threw me even a party with my friends. And now look at this son of his. He's come back. Now he throws him a party with the calf I was saving for New Year's. You know? And there it is. And, 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 and the father looks at him and says, you really don't get it, do you? You really don't get it. I've been gracious to you from the day you were born. You didn't choose to be born into my family. (laughs) But you're my son. And you've been here. And I've blessed you and been gracious to you. And given you counsel. And given you safety and protection. And and good work and all of that. And I've, I've blessed you. You should be thrilled that now your brother's back. So he can receive from me too. In fact, doesn't say this. But in fact, to the elder brother... You should say, you know, when your brother left, you should have grieved for him. You should have been sad for him. You should have said, you don't, don't go. Don't you know the, 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 the wonder of our lives with our father, how gracious he is, how kind he is, how good he is. You should have been grieved when he, when, when he left. And now that he's back, you should be thrilled for him. You should have pleaded with him not to go. And now that he's back, you should welcome him because he now gets to enjoy what you've always enjoyed. You didn't deserve it, but, but you've always enjoyed it. And now he gets to enjoy it. That's the, very, that's the very point of it. And so this passage in Jonah 4 is, is about that elder brother. You remember, ooh, you remember the story that Jesus told about that unmerciful servant. Uh, there was a man, Jesus said, who owed A servant who owed his master billions. And he pled with his master, don't worry, I can pay it, which was silly. Because he couldn't. But he said, I can pay it, but the master said, no, you can't, I'll forgive you. And he forgave him. And then that very one who had been forgiven, you know, went out and found someone who owed him like $20,000. And he threw him into prison because the man wouldn't pay. Shocking. What's what's the point, really? The point is that we need to not forget the grace we've been shown. In fact, to teach Jonah a lesson, God brings up this plant. You know, when when, when Jonah had uh, 
had, had, had gone out of the city, he built himself a little shelter, uh, a tabernacle. Ironically, it's the same kind of tabernacle that the Jews would build during the Feast of Booths when they would commemorate the grace of God in their lives. And there was Jonah in this tabernacle and, and he was waiting to see what was going to happen. Maybe God, you know, will really destroy them as he ought to. But then God raises up this really neat plant to shade Jonah and it shades him and he loves it. And he's, he's as happy now as he was disturbed before. And then God raises up a worm and this worm comes and it, it withers the plant and then this scorching heat comes the next day and Jonah's just miserable again. And so miserable again that he wants to die. And so then God says, all right, here's the end of the lesson. The logic here, Jonah, the end of the lesson is, why are you so concerned about this plant? This plant that you had nothing to do with. This plant that I simply raised up for you to bless you. You, you didn't plant it. You didn't think of it. You couldn't have. You couldn't have made it happen overnight like I did. Uh, you never cultivated it, pruned it, fertilized it. You never did anything with it. And now you're upset with it because you're no longer comfortable because I took it away from you. And uh, now, shouldn't I be concerned about all these people in Nineveh that I created? All these people in Nineveh, 120,000 of them that don't know their right hand from their left. Meaning they're completely ignorant of the things of God. They were in the same situation that Jesus would express like this. That they were like sheep without a shepherd. Helpless and harassed. He says, why wouldn't I show compassion on them when I I showed it to you? And I think, yeah. How can I ever withhold the mercy, the grace, compassion of the truth of the gospel from anyone. No matter how much they've hurt me, no matter how much damage they're doing to our culture, no matter how much they've hurt others, no matter how much they flaunt it, no matter how despicable it may seem to be to me that they are, How can I ever think of them like that when I realize that one day I woke up in the belly of a big fish by the grace of God? See, what we're to see here, I think, in this whole incident that took place in the life of Jonah is we're to see the glory of God. We're to see his sovereign mercy and grace And rejoice in it. Because we've known his sovereign mercy and grace in our own lives. And once we've known the sovereign grace and mercy in our own lives, how can we not be merciful and gracious to others? And the way that we get there, of course, is we go to the cross and we see Jesus. And we ask ourselves, why did Jesus come? He came because I'm a sinner. He came to be merciful and gracious to me. He came so that the mercy and grace of God could be shown to the likes of me. Those who didn't know their right hand from their left. And to save 
the likes of me. And so, we give this gospel to everyone. We pray not for judgment, but for grace so that our Father can be filled with joy and that we can receive all those who come to him in repentance and faith and receive them as brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us, that you'd work in me, in us, in such a way that we'd understand, we'd get, we'd deeply, deeply, profoundly be affected by the grace that we've received in such a way that we would show it to others. Even our enemies. And that we would be as overjoyed at the repentance of others as you, God, are with their repentance. Help us, I pray. Give us grace to speak this word boldly as those on that first day of Pentecost. And may we speak it here, there, and everywhere, all over the world, and locally as well, everywhere, that we may be able to extend, if you will, the mercy that we've received. Father, I pray for those in our congregation who find their lives difficult at the moment, some Relationally, in marriages, some with their kids, some with their parents, some financially. Some in their, their own emotions as they, they battle thoughts that are condemning thoughts that have the goal of destroying. So I pray, God, your mercy and your grace upon them. I pray for those who find this to be true in their own bodies for our dear Melissa Foster. She's healing. I pray for her that you continue to heal her. For, for our Meki, who's uh, recovering in, in the midst of cancer therapy. For Marjorie Miller in the midst of it as well. Uh, that you would be with them and others, Father, that find themselves in such a situation. I pray, God, as our VBS approaches our vacation Bible school, that you would be with us. That this would be a time of um, that you would pour out your spirit in such a way upon our teachers, most especially upon our children and the children who come, that you'd be gracious, Father, that you would save children who come, children who come from from families who've never uh, shared with them the gospel of Jesus, have no intention to, uh, uh, but simply want their kids to come here um, for whatever reason. And uh, I pray that these children would receive this gospel and believe. This, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.